This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no, this isn't a science fiction novel. Honest, this is Contact from Koldas. So we've got a weird contactee story uh, again this week, this time. This is another non-American contactee story that comes to us through the publishing of Wendell Stevens, who has brought us so many people over the years. So it's a Wendell Stevens deal. So there's lots of asides from him in here. It takes place in in South Africa and some neighboring nations. And just to be clear, that does not necessarily make this an African UFO story. As far as I can tell, there are no natives of the African continent involved. We're in an age here in the 1960s and 70s when this book takes place of, if not colonialism, then very, very recent post-colonialism, especially in places like South Africa, where the sort of colonial government just sort of became the government of the new independent South African Republic. So it's more of a European contactee story. And the book is written by a guy named Carl Van Vleerden. He wasn't the contactee, though. Until he was. Kind of. Let's go. So the book begins with a preface from Stevens where he explains that it's not a contactee case that existed in the past. As of the mid-1980s when he's writing this, it is ongoing. And it's experienced, quote, in full physical reality by a great number of sane, healthy, everyday people. Just like you end quote, which sounds a bit insulting, really. These contactees are just like you. Take that back, you know? So in Stevens's view, what makes this case interesting? This particular case is of special interest because it was carefully investigated and documented by highly competent and well-experienced longtime UFO investigators, one of whom became himself involved directly in the case. Carl Van Vleerden is a cautious researcher who doesn't take anything for granted. He is one who must see for himself, and that is just what he did for years in this case. Now, a couple things here. One, I do not think I can say Van Vleerden um, consistently without having to do lots and lots of re-recording of things. So he's just going to be Carl for us. Carl was an investigator, we know that, uh, with numerous reports published in big UFO magazines like Flying Saucer Review, as we're going to see. Also interesting to Stevens is this fact. Consider, as you read this account, that this report concerns only one of more than 300 Q bases maintained about the surface of our planet by only one extraterrestrial organization. In addition to that, there are five A bases of considerably more facility, having at least one assigned spacecraft and several people, and a large number of H bases, all belonging to the same confederation of observers. I am aware of three other similar extraterrestrial confederations, each having Earth bases and Earth contact centers scattered about the surface of our planet, and none of them seem to be interfering with each other in any way. 
I do not, at this time, know how they are separated and avoid conflicts of interest. No, I didn't leave a bunch of stuff out. This is the third paragraph of the book. He's talking about Q bases and A bases and and H bases, and and there's different alien groups here. It's weird. Uh, Stevens sort of starts this preface off assuming that people have already skipped the preface and read the book and then came back to the preface. And we'll get to a lot of, of what this means, the Q bases and so forth, as we look at the book that Van Vleerden has written and what we learn from Edwin, the initial contactee. But Stevens makes an interesting sort of claim here. He's aware of other extraterrestrial confederations that all have earth bases, but they don't sort of talk to each other or the people that this book is going to discuss. So Stevens seems a bit credulous here, which is kind of an ongoing thing. Because he's sort of like, well, gosh, you know, you'd think all these people who have bases on Earth would talk to each other, all these different confederations. But I don't know. I guess uh, I guess they don't. Maybe they aren't really here. Or maybe one of them is and the other two aren't. Or two of them are and the other one isn't. Or one is and two aren't. Or two are and one isn't. Stevens, you just can't believe everything you're told. I mean, you'll probably sell fewer books that way. But come on. So another interesting thing is that all of these contacts happened, not all of them, but a lot of them happened through a regular old radio, except when there wasn't one, and then the aliens were able to communicate in other ways, but a radio. This is going to have some similarities to some other things that we've heard over the years. And Stevens says that this radio, it must have been pretty amazing because, quote, the local government tried to shut down the contacts by first charging the contactee with operating an unlicensed radio station, although he had only a receiver, and later they confiscated that receiver, end quote. So, yeah, the authorities wanted to take away the secret radio. Shocking man in black-like behavior from the authorities. Despite that, the contacts are still going on. Not as many as back in the day, but they're still going on. There's uh, some bases that are inactive, the A bases. We'll learn about all these. It's, it's, I hate how Stevens is throwing all this terminology in before we've even gotten to the book. Most of the Q bases are still receiving messages. So direct messages from the aliens are, are sometimes concerning, sometimes confusing, sometimes met with um, skepticism. Stevens addresses that skepticism. Students of the elusive UFO phenomenon frequently ask for more information on direct communications with the extraterrestrial occupants of these strange craft. This book is written almost entirely from such communications received in a highly unique and yet verifiable manner, witnessed and tested by a considerable diversity of people. The communications were carried out over almost a 20-year period, using a radio receiver at first, and because of that they were essentially one-way contacts. After the radio receiver was taken, a sort of direct voice channel was developed using Edwin's physical senses to transmit and also to receive. With this method, the communications became two-way, and lively exchanges took place. Later still, a method of mechanically overriding the circuitry in a portable cassette recorder was tried, and was then used in conjunction with direct voice channel through Edwin. Now, the first thing I thought when I read that about the the mechanical overriding of the tape recorder, first thing I thought, first thing maybe you thought if you've been listening for a while, is the Scoriton incident where the alien messages and sounds would be overlaid onto, uh, onto magnetic tape 
on tape recorders. Now, Stevens does acknowledge that there are similarities between the message and the methods of these contactees from Koldas and other places. He says that there's conjecture that this is either a cultural similarity taking place, or he says all these stories are simply fabrications, or perhaps they all tune into the same, quote, idea pattern in consciousness. So Stevens, when confronted with the, the, the sort of you know, devil's advocate argument that, you know, these are a lot like every other contactee story we've heard, says, well, yes, but maybe that's because there's something going on across the culture, or maybe it's all made up, or everybody's sort of evolving in the same way in different parts of the world, and our consciousness is very similar, and they're taking advantage of this. Yeah, honestly, um, it's probably one of those things. It's either real or it's not. And the similarities, you know, could be copycat stuff, or it could be the same aspects or different aspects of the same thing. Um, he points out some similarities to some other contactee situations. Um, the Koldassians, the Norkans, the Amoans, the Centaurans, the Vagans, the Bavians, the Palladians, and many more. Not coincidentally, um, Stevens has published books on all of these contacts. So it's a way for him to say, if you want to know more about these sorts of things, read my other books. Interesting that there's so many common threads among these things coming from the same publisher. So let's move on from Stevens's introduction and forward here because um, it just goes on and on. And that's like 10 pages. Of, um, of the sort of ebook version. And I should mention that the ebook version is awful. The original hard copy is impossible to find. The ebook version that is sold on Amazon probably won't be for very long because they always get taken down because they're basically just PDFs that have been pasted as images into a Kindle format. And it is awful. It, it's awful. So, yeah. So we move now to an introduction by Carl Van Vlerden himself. And he does make a fairly good, interesting point that we're going to want to keep in our minds as we go forward. Any reader familiar with space lore will recognize that themes occurring in other books are in Valdar's story. No attempt has been made to correlate this account with those of other authors, as we feel that our story must be told as we received and understood it. Look, folks, we realize that a lot of what you're going to read in this book is very much like every other UFO contact ebook you've read and a lot of the science fiction material you may be familiar with, but we didn't do that intentionally and we have not sort of compared this or correlated this with any of those other things. It's just a absolute coincidence that what you're going to read is very similar to what you've probably read in several other books. And then Carl goes on to, to say to the readers who think the whole thing is an elaborate hoax, those readers will be left with the problem of, quote, by whom and for what reason, end quote. And that's a good question because, as we're going to see, this is a very strange story. And if it's being made up, there doesn't seem to be much point to it being made up. So let's dig into what actually happened with this narrative. We've gone 10 minutes or so with just introductions here, which is very strange. It's subtitled um, A Cosmic Dialogue, but it doesn't really take the form of a dialogue like you might think of a Socratic dialogue or anything like that. Rather, it's more of a narrative story 
than even many other contact details. So the first chapter is entitled Valdar, and we learn a lot about what's going on with these people around the universe. So things begin with the description of an astral craft, which is spelled, this is weird, A-S-T-R-A-E-L craft, astral craft. And there's an explanation in parentheses that it's not from the astral plane, but it's named after the constructor of the ship, whose name was Astral. So it's an astral craft. Oh, from the stars or the astral plane? No, that's just the guy's name, which is one of the oddest choices I think I've seen in a contactee book in a while. So a ship comes to Earth, crosses the universe, lands on a planet, and then we get a description of who the person is and what's going on. And it is written in a way that is, well, just listen. But this was a routine journey for the commander of the astral craft, Wyora, his 14-man crew, and a passenger. They had all been trained for travel through the timeless passages of the universe. It was no novelty for them, as their ancestors had perfected it many generations ago. On this occasion, they came to bring a brilliant, young aspirant commander to do his two-year training period on Earth. It was dark when he set foot on the planet, but there were some people waiting to meet him. The landing was on the same beach where, 18 years before, they had eagerly awaited the arrival of his immediate superior, Wyora, when he, too, had come to serve his apprenticeship on Earth. Now, it was Valdar's turn. Carl is really throwing us in the deep end here with this. We've got a chapter named Valdar, and then we meet the commander of the craft, Wyora, and we hear that his people have been traveling for, you know, timeless ages. It's no novelty to them. Their ancestors have done it for generations, and now they're landing on Earth. Why are they landing on Earth? Because there's a new guy now who's going to start his apprenticeship or internship on Earth like Wyora had years ago. It's now Valdar's turn to be on Earth. It's all very convoluted and we're just sort of having all this stuff thrown at us the way the book's put together is is kind of oddly constructed so carl van vleerden talks about how he was chosen by valdar to tell his story and carl says he'd been interested in ufos for a long time and then he met a young man or heard about a young man in durban south africa who had gotten in touch with people from space this guy was named edwin And Carl sets out to meet Edwin. It takes a long time, years, for him to sort of get in touch with this guy. And then when he finally meets Edwin, Edwin tells his story. And and basically, back in 1960, Edwin was working in a factory. And a new guy came to work at the factory who was introduced as George. Now, George was a new radio technician in the factory. They'd been looking for one for a long time. and, And George was the one who they hired. So George starts to work there, and Edwin and George become good friends. George is living in a hotel there in town, and they would spend time together fishing and talking about philosophy and cosmic things and things like that. And one day, they're out fishing. George puts down his fishing rod and opens up his tackle box, and inside the tackle box was a radio set. George pulls out the antenna and tells Edwin about this interesting radio set. This is a receiver, said George. Suddenly, to my surprise, I heard a strange language coming from the speaker. It was unlike any language I had heard before. It's all arranged, George said, clearly satisfied with what was taking place. 
I wondered what was up his sleeve. Just wait, he said. In about 15 minutes, look out over the sea. Then, after 10 minutes or so, I saw to my amazement a bright light above the water coming toward us. It grew larger as it approached, and when it reached a point near the bluff, about three kilometers to the south of us, it stopped and changed course. The light now came parallel to the shore until it was vertically above us over the groin. Here it stopped again and hovered. It was now about the size of a tennis ball held at arm's length. It shone with a bluish-white light, sharply outlined, steady, and not pulsating at all. It was a beautiful spectacle. I was quite overawed. I heard the radio speaker coming to life again, this time much stronger. George seemed to understand what the voice was saying. I did not take much notice of what was happening on the radio as I was looking up at the light. This must be one of those spacecraft, I thought to myself. George said to me, Edwin, listen carefully. I drew nearer to the instrument, but still kept an eye on the object above us. So the speaker, the voice coming out of this radio uh, receiver, is Wyora, and he explains who George is. George is actually Valdar, the guy who is serving an apprenticeship on Earth. And I think it's interesting, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I thought it was very interesting that Valdar's fake Earth name is George, when there are so many contactees whose names were George. Indeed, when I was sort of flipping through the book, uh, just sort of scrolling through it before I um, sat down to read the whole thing straight through, I was sort of, you know, confused. And I was like, is this alien person saying he's some kind of reincarnation of George Adamski's is sort of what I was thinking Then I, when I read, I was like, no, that's not what it is. It's just his fake name here on earth. So Wyora explains that, um, Valdar is here to start a group of people who will be taught what life in the universe is like. They come from the planet Koldas. And Edwin, who is 16 at the time, is completely sort of amazed by that. And, you know, he's seeing the spacecraft and he's going to remember this night for the rest of his life. So their friendship goes on. They they continue to talk. They continue to go fishing. Except now, when they're alone, Edwin calls him Valdar not George, and learns all about Koldas and the confederation of planets that Koldas is part of, and Valdar tells him a little bit about sort of the history with the Koldasians and Earth. Valdar later told me that Wyora had also spent two years here, and that he now headed a committee of space people assigned to our planet Earth. Valdar said, if only you Earthlings knew how many visitors from space are among you, you would be very surprised. He said that nearly every country is visited by them. All these space visitors are volunteers who are first thoroughly trained in the language and customs of the country they are to visit. When they are landed in some secluded spot, they are met by people who have also been prepared for their arrival. Then they live and move among us, sometimes for years. Obviously, they have to hide their true beliefs in extraterrestrials anyway. It is also made easy for them by the fact that they can make themselves identical to us. So this is interesting. Usually we're expecting the aliens that contactees come into contact with to be human appearing. But here we get sort of confirmation that at least the Koldassians, you know, they remake themselves to look more human, to fit in in a better way. Valdar teaches Edwin about their religion, the divine one, a supreme being. He's created all things. It's basically a generic God. All mankind is created by a divine force. All mankind are brothers and sisters. 
they believe in reincarnation, but doesn't really go into that very much. There's religion on Earth, but it's a corrupted form of the true religion that people like the Caldassians and their confederates enjoy. So there's more that Edwin learns about the uh, about the confederation, but he also spends some time here describing Valdar as a person. Yes, in the two years we were together, Valdar told me many things about life in the confederation. But some weekends we used to spend our time just sunbathing along the beaches. I got to know him as a jovial, cheerful sort of person. He was always optimistic. His favorite saying was, never to worry. He was kind and thoughtful. If you met him at a party, or socially, you would find him to be the life of the party, cracking jokes and that sort of thing. He was also very strong physically. I remember how there was an occasion at the factory when a heavy machine had to be moved. It usually required four men to pick it up and shift it. Valdar must have wondered what all the fuss was about, as, on this occasion, he unobtrusively took the machine up by himself and put it down where it was needed. I don't know. It might just be me, but it seems like the the description of the relationship between between Edwin and Valdar here is... It's kind of like they're dating. I don't know. Well, sometimes, you know, we just have a lazy afternoon just sunbathing, and then we talk for a while, and... It just sounds nice and cozy, like a nice relationship. I'm glad they had that. I'm glad they were able to share those times together. Eventually, Valdar is going to leave. His assignment will be done, and he will leave behind the radio receiver with Edwin so Edwin can continue to receive messages from the Caldassians. And it's beamed by radio transmissions, but not just anybody can pick them up. You need a receiver that's been modified in a special way, and you have to have the alien Coldassian spacecraft beam in the right place, as Edwin tries to explain in terms that I almost kind of understand. To make a transmission, the spacecraft takes up a position directly above our house. They're approximately 520 kilometers above the ground, but are not visible to the naked eye. On some occasions, they come lower, especially to show themselves to us. But for radio transmissions, they remain at about that height. To communicate, they send down a narrow beam, like a beam of light, but of course it's invisible. I think that's how they energize the receiver, by beaming the power the transistors need, and this beam carries the message. The receiver does not need to be tuned to any particular frequency. I've added a switch to cut off the front end of the set, the RF stage. This is the reason no other receiver can pick up these transmissions, unless they know one's location and the antenna is connected to the final stage. So, that pretty much ends the first chapter, as as we meet Valdar. There are 20-some chapters, and some contact e-books are refreshingly short. UFO Contact from Planet Called Us is not one of those. So... As I was working on this episode and preparing it and and trying to figure out how I was going to structure this story and explain this book and and, and what goes into it, I made a decision that we're going to sort of hit the high points of the Caldassians and their culture and sort of how the book is is structured and especially how it's different from some other contact e-books or most other contact e-books. But we are not going to get into the granular level of everything because there is a lot that could have been taken out of here in the editing process. It's very, very long. So 
some things to that were sort of discussed in that first chapter that tie in to what Wendell Stevens talked about in his introduction. When Wendell talks about the Q bases, these are the groups of humans around the world who have access to these receivers and are receiving messages from the Kaldassians. And that's something that's a little distinct from a lot of other contactee works. Most of the time, the contactee, your George Van Tassels, your George Adamskis, your Adamskis, I can't pronounce that, your George Adamskis, your whoever, your Orfeo Angelucci, for example, they're the person who's in contact with the aliens and they're the messenger, they're the prophet, they're the one who's spreading the message. Here, you've got numerous people and they're in groups listening to these messages over these radio transmissions. And they, you know, there were other people around Edmund and and Carl Van Vlerden who's writing this. He would hear these messages as well. So there's multiple witnesses to these messages coming through. It seems to be unless there was, you know, a massive scam going on. You know, there was some kind of voice coming through some kind of device is how it seems to be. So in chapter two, we meet Wyora, who's the sort of superior officer to Valdar. And sometimes his voice comes through on the tape recordings that are connected to the radio receivers, like sort of like in Scoriton, but not uh, not really. So Wyora, here's uh, here's some Wyora. He has some complaints about the planet Earth. Why are Earth people so different? asked Wyora in a radio transmission to Q Base, the name he gave to Edwin's group. The rulers of several other planets in our universe have received us with open arms. Indeed, very recently, Coldus has established friendly trade relations with Pyrol, a planet that has reached the same level of evolution as Earth. Now there is a bond of friendship between the inhabitants of Pyrol and the Confederation. This is... Maybe I've missed it in other contactee works. That is certainly likely. I'm sure I will get emails explaining this to me when I say this next thing. But I can't remember another time when we get sort of this narrative of an alien saying, you know, Earth, you know, you're, you're, you're backwards. We could bring you in the Confederation. You know, we could help you out. There's another planet over here who's just like you. We fixed them. Usually all the other planets and these Confederations and things that we hear about are more advanced than Earth. It's not often we find, oh yeah, there's another Earth-like planet at the same stage of development, and you know, hey, they're 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 cool. We're we're pals with them now. So Wyora is is wondering why the rulers of Earth are so obstinate, stubborn, unwilling to work with the uh, Kaldassians. He goes into this a little bit more and explains sort of this diplomatic process. I guess that's the best term for it, between the Kaldassians and various Earth governments. To land openly on your planet, we must obtain permission from our superiors on Kaldass, but they will not grant this until all Earth's governments have fully accepted the Confederation. We only come in peace. We will not invade your planet. Your governors must accept us of their own free will. We only wish to bring you happiness, peace, and a better way of living. Other planets have learned to share knowledge amongst themselves, and by doing this, each planet automatically progresses to a bit higher level. We could show our fleets of astral craft to the millions of inhabitants of Earth. The maneuver is easily arranged by flying low over all the capital cities of Earth. But if we did this, we would rob your rulers of their freedom to choose or reject us. Yes, your leaders know about us. They know of the work we have done above and below the seas of your planet in the past. We always contact the rulers first whenever we discover a new planetary civilization. 
but most of Earth's population are not ready to accept the fact that there is life beyond their atmosphere. So there we have it. Why don't the flying saucers land on the White House lawn? Well, because they don't want to rob the president or other world leaders of their free will. It's kind of a prime directive kind of thing. Sort of. Um, actually, their confederation of planets and things like that do have some Star Trekky overtones. And the, the time period's right. You know, you, you sort of get some of that stuff when you're finding contactee things from the, the 50s and, and the early 60s, sort of pre-Star Trek times. But I don't know. This one seems to owe a lot to later science fiction concepts. Wyora also explained to Edmund and his Q, uh, his Q group, his Q base, about sort of the origins of Kaldas and where they learned things from. Just like Earth and other planets will learn, th- Pyrol, that was the name of the planet, learns things from the Kaldasians, Kaldas had to start somewhere and learned things as well. Grandor is the mother planet of the Confederation. It is an old planet, and her people are the oldest race known to us. They traveled through endless corridors of space in their craft to search for new planets, and this is how they discovered Koldas. They found a race of people who were primitive and whose knowledge did not extend beyond their own horizons. Grandorian missionaries landed on Koldas after obtaining permission from local rulers. They brought their highly evolved civilization with them, and eventually Grandorians and Koldasians intermarried, and a new age dawned for the Koldasian solar system. When I first read this passage, the, the, the sort of sort of snarky sentence that passed through my mind was, man, once upon a time we were colonized and it was pretty sweet. Everything worked out great. It, it's just sort of, you know, it, it's sort of that, that sort of benevolent assimilation type of mood that's going on with what, uh, with what Wyora is talking about. So for several years, Wyora served out his apprenticeship on Earth just like, uh, just like Valdar had. He piloted an astral craft to our solar system as part of his training in, in 1942, and he, he lived here for a while. And, you know, he sort of tells his life story, and it's not very interesting. They built, start building this, this group of contactees and, and people they're in touch with on Earth back during this time. And those are the people who were sort of hanging around waiting for the flying saucer to show up when Valdar arrived on Earth to begin his training period. So there's a lot of fun stuff here, but it does go on and on and on about sort of the life story of these different alien people. But this is one of my favorite passages in the whole book. And I don't know, maybe it's because my attention drifted as I was reading, but most of my favorite things about this book came very early. But this is... This is the most fun I had reading this book right here. In most of the radio transmissions, there were personal messages for the individual members of Q Base. In 1967, Wyora wished everyone a happy Christmas and then said, I have a message from my crew. They asked, would it be possible for you to save them each a piece of Christmas cake? (laughs) My friends, I doubt very much if they could identify a piece of Christmas cake, even if they saw it. these weird sort of personal touches and, and these attempts by the aliens to sort of seem normal and personable and more human-like to their Earth contacts that I find very refreshing in a lot of these UFO books or contact e-books rather. Here's another example of what I like in here and we get 
sort of character development and new characters coming in. And they all have silly names and, and silly alien names are the best. During a routine radio transmission in the middle of that year, Wyora brought the news that Valdar had been promoted. He was to take charge of a division of astral craft assigned to the solar system of Pyrol. His assistant was Mankton, who would be left in charge when Valdar returned to Koldus for his rest periods. Wyora would continue to command the patrol to Earth's solar system. During this transmission, he was able to relay a short message from Valdar who said, I am overjoyed to be able to make contact with you at Q-Base again. I overheard Wyora telling you of my promotion. I am honored to have been given this position with my good friend, Mankton. I shall miss your solar system very much. We have grown very fond of your planet. We will not be able to transmit to you as frequently as before, but when it is possible, we will do so. I will now return you to Wyora, so for the present, we wish you the best of health until we can transmit again. I think my favorite thing about this this is that Wyora is saying, okay, Valdar has been promoted. Uh, Mangton's going to be his assistant. So Mangton's going to be left in charge when Valdar has to go back to Caldas. Uh, I'm still going to be running things here in the solar system. And then Valdar jumps in and says, I, 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 this is great news. I'm, I'm great. It's great that I'm able to talk to you guys at Cubase. I overheard Wyora telling you of my promotion. You're just imagining this little scene in your head. It's, it's completely, completely fun. It really is. And we'll get back to the fun here in a second. We'll be back in a week with a sort of afterlife episode fielding any questions and comments you have through the various social media channels and and email about this somewhat different contactee story. And the saucer wife will be returning to give us her reaction and ask some questions as well. Then on the next regular episode, we're getting closer to the present as we'll be looking at the early development of some aspects of the UFO disclosure movement concept during the 1990s. And as I've mentioned before, I'm going to be giving a presentation on saucer felons and sort of saucer crime, UFO criminals, at this year's Strange Realities Conference in Nashville and online, October 15th through 17th. Check it out at strangerealitiesconference.com. You can get it, I think, probably anywhere you can get the internet, which is pretty nice. You can check out old episodes and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can also support us through the link in the show notes. We depend on listener support, both financial and moral, and we've received some of that over the years, and we're always very appreciative. We're on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can also contact us by post at Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 484 And now, let's see what Wyora and Valdar are up to. Next, we learn about Melkor, Earth's halfway station. This is a a space base sort of built into some rubble from the destroyed planet that was in the solar system. So it's called Melkor. It's a space base. They describe several levels built into the rock. And then we go into a long passage about how the Pyrolians from the planet Pyrol, you know, Wyora or no Valdar has been appointed to the Pyrolian system. So he's going to be out of touch for a while and they're going to get some different ships, but there's going to be some new craft transferred here and there. It's all just very, 
I've used this word before, granular, very detailed in what it's talking about. And this book goes on and on and on. But as I said, I think what interests me most about this book is the development of these characters and the insights we get into their career trajectories as they are sort of moving throughout the uh, Caldassian Confederation fleet. And like I said, Valdor is getting sort of moved off to a different place, and he has a farewell message for the Cubase people that Edwin is in charge of. Very soon, Valdar's voice was heard. I am Valdar. The personnel and myself send greetings to you, Edwin, and all who are listening. My friends, this will be my last transmission to you from this craft. During the next cycle of duty, I will be within the solar system of Pyrol. I have been given a division of six astral craft to sweep the magnetic fields of that system. Mankton will relieve me during my rest periods. My friends, the personnel and myself would like to thank you for listening to our radio communications, for by doing so, you have given us much joy. We are sorry that we will not be able to transmit to you regularly in the future, but when the opportunity arises, we will certainly do so again. For the present time, may the Divine One guide and protect you. I am your old friend, George. I like that callback for Edwin to his original George identity that uh, Valdar had when Edwin first met him. So Valdar is off. We'll hear more about Valdar later. But Wyora is continuing to talk to the Q group. And again, we get some little snippets of we're not so different, your people and mine, from the Supreme Commander. Then, one Sunday morning, in the presence of the Q group, Wyora spoke as though he wished to emphasize the similarity of the needs of his crew to those of our own astronauts. After the usual greeting, he went on to say, While I am making this transmission, the crew of this patrol craft will take the opportunity to eat their main meal for the day. I have just been served a warm, refreshing drink. It consists mainly of fruit juices blended together and can be enjoyed hot or cold. The fruit comes from cold ass, and the liquid is stored in round containers sealed at the top. When the drink is served, the seal on the top is removed and the liquid can be drunk directly from the container. We are supplied with enough of these containers to last our cycle of patrol. Our food is stored in sealed containers about 20 by 10 centimeters and are divided into many sections. Each section holds its own type of food. When the container is heated after breaking the seal, the contents are emptied into a square tray that has divisions in it and the food is emptied into the various partitions. We eat our food with utensils such as yours. There are various combinations of food within these containers, but our main diet consists of vegetables and fish found on cold ass. With our meals, we have mazales, a type of bread. When prepared, mazales looks very much like your wheat bread. It is made into small squares and eaten with the main meal. Well, Caldassians have TV dinners. That is absolutely amazing. There's also an interesting story in this book about something that happened in 1945. The planet of Salamia, yes, like Salami, is part of the Confederation, and they tried an experimental colony on Salamia that were volunteers from one single town in Switzerland. These people volunteered to go and and be sort of colonists on the planet of Salamia. But within a year, most of them decided to go back home. Some are still there on Salamia. They're getting along with the Salamian people, and they have a small village where they, quote, still carry on some of their Swiss traditions and home language. But 
this failure, the Swiss failure, as Wyora calls it, was disappointing to Salamia, and they withdrew all their bases from Earth. So there are different nations or different planets within the Confederation talking to different bases on Earth. And again, a base is one of these groups of people like Edwin's group, this Q base that is receiving these messages. We learn a little bit about some other planets around and it's really, really kind of interesting, but it does tend to go on and on and on. And there's also some some issues as we, we go through the book with some of the people at the Q bases not really believing everything that was going on sometimes, maybe expressing a little bit of occasional skepticism. Wyora hit the nail on the head when he said, What is wrong at Q base? For some time I have felt that you are doubting us, our planets, and our civilization. You have asked for more proof of our existence, photographs of our craft, our people, and our cities. Why this change of heart? What has happened to the trust you had in us? Stop asking for evidence. You've got a weird voice coming from a radio. Isn't isn't that enough? So, as time goes on, the book goes on, which is kind of a bit of a truism there, right? But in 1968, there was an issue and some danger, and Wyora opened a broadcast and was a little bit alarmed and alarming with the message he had for the listeners of Cubase. My friends, I know I have no right to ask you this question at this stage, for after all, I am an alien. But if at any time I were to ask you to leave your planet and accompany me to Coldass to make your home there, would you agree to do this? I realize this may come as a bit of a shock. I also realize that life on Coldass is very different from that on Earth. There are many things you would have to adjust to, but I feel that in time you would adapt to your new environment and be able to settle down. I will leave this matter with you for now, for who can tell what the future will bring? You must come of your own free will. We will not take one of you and leave others, for this is against our principles of ethic. We do not like to separate families, so as I said before, all must be willing to come. I know many of you are afraid, I do not blame you, but let me assure you that the ships are safe and very reliable. As for the inhabitants of Coldass, they are like you, flesh and blood, breathing air. The fundamental difference is that we on Coldass and in the Confederation foster peaceful relations and goodwill to all creatures. The cement of our social structure is love, and it is inculcated from an early age. Trust us, we will not fail you. So something is up, something is, is going on, something is very alarming. The Caldassians and Myora are concerned that there is going to be massive war and destruction on Earth, and they want to make efforts to prepare some humans to leave and live on other planets within the Federation, much like the Swiss did. And it's got to be said, much like we see in the old Ashtar channeled messages about an evacuation coming, that in the event of some kind of disaster, humans will be, some humans, those who have faith in Ashtar, right, will be saved. And Wyora would later sort of expand on this plan. At the present moment, there are about 3,000 people on Earth who are known to the Confederation. All have been in contact with the Confederation at one time or another. In the event of atomic war, the specially trained pilots, together with the assistance of the Q bases and groups, will respond immediately to evacuate these people. Recently, I had mentioned the matter of evacuation again, as I feared that the outbreak of atomic war was imminent. 
Happily, this calamity does not appear likely at the moment. All the other members of the Confederation have agreed to divert craft from other operations to assist in evacuation if this becomes necessary. However, there's some bad news. Okay, so it's not necessary to evacuate yet. That's the good news. The bad news is that due to changes in the patrol structure and the patrol routes, the Koldassian craft are going to be further out into the solar system and will not be near Earth very much at all, only in cases of emergency or when special permission has been granted by the leaders of Earth. So what we get now is a treat. We get Wyora giving the command for the fleet to evacuate the region of Earth, and he gives this command in his own Koldassian language. Casalango. Vizinango, Lesi Vishingo, Wayora, Lasaka Lao Mao, Se, Sela Uvu, Slavanda, Slakalango, Salandi, Lakasa, Kraloso, Lavando, Si, Casindula, Vanda, Alasio, On Si, Wayora. And apologies to any native Koldassian speakers out there for my pronunciation. I'm a little rusty. So the translation is quote, This is Wayora to the second Koldassian fleet. I now command you to evacuate this area and leave for the new patrol areas assigned. I am Wyora. So we then get a chapter or so of descriptions of spaceships that is really, really boring. Descriptions of debates over rearranging patrol routes that are even more boring. And then things pick up with a war, a no foolin' space war between the Caldassians and the Galdonians. Um, the Earth receives a message, an emergency message, saying that two Earth days, seriously, they say Earth days, it's awesome, two Earth days ago, Galdonian space assault craft invaded the Koldassian atmosphere. So there's a space war going on, and the story of this space war goes on for a long, long time, and we get all sorts of back and forth and things and things. That's kind of vague. We get back and forth. There's a win here. There's a loss here for the Koldassians. This city we've never heard of till this paragraph was invaded. This guy died who we'd only heard of once. It's, it's interesting, but we do get these updates. And here's an example of one of those sort of updates from the war front. However, on March 24th, there was news of another attack. Another blow has been struck at Koldass. Two of your weeks ago, Galdonian missiles completely destroyed a small town on the northern side. I know this town well because I was born in Tafiliano and spent my youth growing up there. Thousands of people lost their lives and many more were injured. I was deeply shocked when I was told the damage. All the survivors were evacuated and the place is now a ghost town. Smoldering ruins. Yes, Caldas has had a taste of the horror and futility of war. Cascendo also mentioned that the newly replaced Corinthian Division had left three Earth days ago to reconnoiter the unexplored regions for the hostile planet or planets. He said the division had been divided into three task forces, which would also periodically report to Melkor. So we get this great update about the war, and that's followed by paragraph of actually pretty boring stuff about the division had been divided into three tasks for who cares oh and corinthian it's not like from corinth in greece it's corinthian with a y and it's a a, a kind of spaceship so that update had come from crescendo and 
Wendell Stevens, editor Wendell Stevens, pops in here to point out that different voices and different characters had come through in these messages, and there had been multiple witnesses hearing all of these different voices with different accents and different characters and things, and Stevens's point is basically there's no way this could have been staged. It would have been impossible to keep this up for 23 years, which, you know, If I accept all of that as actually what happened, yes, that would be very difficult to do. Now, eventually, the war ends, and the victors are the Caldassians, of course. They're the heroes of the story. But we also get a glimpse of some of the background of their enemies, the Galdonians, and this is kind of interesting. It's it's kind of weird, and I'm not entirely sure what this means in some ways. For Edwin and the Q members, this eyewitness report from the surface of the aggressor planet was of immense interest, particularly as there had been more than a hint that their greed and aggressiveness with its accompanying moral degradation had surreptitiously contaminated many planets in the systems which had human life within them. Meanwhile, the communicator making the report painted a bleak picture of conditions affecting the Confederation forces. He was speaking from a position which was dug in in the white sands of the vast desert. From this position, many of the sorties of the Confederation land forces were made. At intervals, they would leave in the direction of the remaining pockets of resistance. The stifling heat, the dragging gravitational load added to the torment. The rapid sunrises, immediately bursting forth radiation which reflected from the white sands at zenith, turned the desert into an oven with a blinding glare. So, it's a pretty inhospitable situation, but at the same time, this is kind of odd, this the Galdonians, the bad guys uh, from the Caldassian point of view, that, that their greed and aggressiveness and moral degradation had contaminated planets and the systems with human life within them. Sort of like, why are these planets bad? Well, it's the evil influence of the Galdonians, not necessarily things they've done. There's almost a, a sort, of, sort of supernatural or, or, or sort of more pushy, forceful way that this this degradation and contamination has occurred. It's just It just struck me as odd, and it may be a problem or issue with Stevens' editing or you know, some sort of weird sort of cultural language thing I'm not understanding, but it just seems oddly phrased, and I can't quite put my finger on why. So the war's over, which is good, but there's other trouble brewing as we move our way through the book. And and I'm not covering every single thing that's talked about here because this is hundreds of pages. But there are beings in the outer worlds and they've taken an interest in the United States of America. But no country on earth is free from their contamination. These peoples of the outer world are trying to corrupt the moral values of mankind, spreading unrest and promoting violence, economic upheavals and quote fanning the flames of war. They're infiltrating humanity and turning humanity evil. They're like contacty space brothers, but bad guys. And it's kind of an interesting idea, much like the space war, much like the tracking the career trajectories of various space brothers. There's just some some little touches that make this book interesting and fun, if overly long. So the bad guys are infiltrating humanity, but there's bad news. There's also some good news. Fortunately, there is still a ray of hope. The Confederation had proposed to the top-level government leaders that all people infected by the alien teaching should be reconditioned. 
This large task could have been undertaken by the specialized equipment the Confederation has available for such a purpose, and Earth would have been purged. But this was not to be. The consensus of opinion on Earth was that all these problems of mankind were not of extraterrestrial origin, and that they would best be solved by man on Earth himself. Okay, maybe it's not good news. Um, I, I just love this. Oh, we can fix this for you, people of Earth. We just have to recondition those of you who are thinking the wrong way. Oh, good. That sounds delightful. But Earth leaders said, no, you know what? We think, we think humanity sucks pretty much just because of the way we are, and we'll try to fix these problems ourselves." Now, as a human who worries that he might be thinking wrongly uh, and who doesn't want to be reconditioned, I think this is, you know, pretty good. But, um, you know, maybe, maybe the bad guys are in charge of Earth. Who knows? I don't know. Could be. So you might also be wondering, you know, why is Edwin, you know, getting away with this? If, if aliens are contacting him from a hovering spaceship, beaming a, a ray of information into his radio, why doesn't somebody do something about that? This sounds like, you know, something that the men in black or something might be interested in. Well, obviously, they were at one point. One dark night, three men paid Edwin a visit at his home. This came after a brief spate of publicity in the form of newspaper write-ups and interviews with journalists. Edwin and his wife were watching TV. There was a knock at the door. On opening it, Edwin faced three men. One of them remained standing at the door while the two others came inside. They were dressed in ordinary clothes. One of the men waved an official-looking document at Edwin and told him it was illegal to distribute alien messages. They confiscated the radio which Valdar had given to him, and this has never been returned. It was a shock to all of us, especially to Edwin. However, this event did not cut us off from the Confederation as other methods of communication had already been brought into use. For instance, this could take the form of a beamed transmission to a standard portable tape recorder with a 12-volt circuit. Those who took the radio were under the mistaken impression that a particular instrument was necessary for this form of communication with the Confederation. Nothing could be further from the truth, for the Confederation can use a human brain as a receiver, as they do in Edwin's case, or they could use radio or tape recorder reception. So if they didn't need to give him the radio in order to communicate with him, why did he have the radio? That's the question I have, but it got us a sort of man in black story, so I'm not going to complain too much. But still, if you don't need a piece of equipment, why have a piece of equipment? So we're getting to the end of this, or at least we're getting to the end of our exploration of it. Um, and we're going to end with a couple of interesting things, a couple of things that I think are fun. And one of them is Valdar's final statement to the Earth, part of that. And it's just fun because it just is this sort of very contacty-ish vision of a bright, hopeful future. Our mighty craft will fill your skies, bringing our civilization to you. For you are to sample and accept or reject. Oh, what a wonderful thought that is, my friends. Thinking of it brings much joy to me, and I am looking forward to that day. But I must leave now. So, from the Confederation and the personnel of this craft, I bid you all farewell. Until we meet again in transmission, I am Valdar. I mostly just get a kick out of doing the Valdar voice. And the final thing, and this is really interesting, this is a recording of one of these transmissions that was included as, I believe, I found this on YouTube, a flexi-disc record 
from, I think, the books that were sold, the, the contact from Planet Called Us books. You might remember those little flimsy, sort of cheapy freebie records that came with things. I barely remember them, but they were a thing. So this is a recording, and I did not edit this except to cut out some of the longer pauses between things that were being said. This is about four minutes long, just giving you a warning. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to attach this at the end after we, we finish things up here because it, it is a little bit long and, and but I don't want to didn't want to cut any of it, but I know some people might not want to listen to the entire thing. So we'll append it to the end of this episode. But I think UFO Contact from Planet Coldos is an interesting contactee book marred by its extreme length and stretches of boringness. But there are little touches that we've explored here over the last hour or so that are just sort of sweet and touching and goofy and enthusiastic. And it's it's books like this and elements of books like this that sort of give me hope for reading about flying saucers when I read current flying saucer stuff, which doesn't interest me as much, but this stuff was fun. Thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels, and the saucer wife and I will address them on our episode next week. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and the saucer life is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the Caldassians because they're pretty cool. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you. I am that Noah, superior of Caldas. Greetings, planet Earth. We are waiting for the peoples of the planet Earth to meet us on a common front, being space. Here we will share all our secrets. Here truly we can show the pioneers of your planet which venture into space a truly magnificent way of life it is a way of life which has been judged and practiced throughout many eons through the confederation of twelve planets not only do we have this to share with these pioneers of yours but there is a wealth of information which will uplift your planet to a much higher level of not only understanding but technically it will raise your planet There will be so many more possibilities. This is our gift 
and all we ask is for understanding. We will remain where we are. We will not intervene. We will not criticize. We will not set foot upon your planet. It is for the taking. It is ours as a gift. All that we have gained over the many eons will be yours, free, which can be brought back to your planet and practiced and put, be put into practice to make your planet a better planet under your own ruling governed by your own superiors in governments. We would be only overjoyed and happy to see this come to pass. We do not wish to intervene in any way whatsoever except holding out the hand of friendship as I am doing now. That guy has the creepiest voice ever. We'll see you next time.